0: cutters got a 10 from pitchfork and has been receiving some serious rave reviews what do you think
1: what's really funny about 10 scores i looked up every album pitchfork has ever given a 10 to um first off the last one was my dark twisted fantasy aka the most overrated album in the history of music by kanye west yeah uh which is like in my mind a solid five of an album I fucking hate that record, but that's... Oh, wow,
0: we're, we're dropping numerical ratings uh, already, okay.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it sucks. It's impossible to listen to. It's aged poorly. The hits are low-level Kanye. It's, I think it's the nadir of Kanye's career personally, but... <laughs> well,
0: I, I kind of actually wonder if, if 10 scores are kind of... I mean i don't know like one of those like like winning the heisman trophy in college football which if, if for people who don't know sports like you basically like usually heisman trophy winners don't do so well like in the actual nfl um i i saw matt LeMay, who i, I don't know if he still writes about music but i saw him on twitter say that um anybody who's like mad about fiona apples like 10 scores should really be mad about him giving um and you'll notice by the trail of dead uh sources and I, I don't know the album. Name source, but, t- source tags and codes, <laughs> yeah. Source tags and codes, a 10, which I thought was pretty funny, which but also made me want to go re listen to it because maybe it's actually still good. But, anyways, um, I guess like kid, kid A got a 10, so I think that's probably fine, fair enough, whatever. This is probably a good enough time to say that uh, you're listening to Money for Nothing, and we are a podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and I'm with co host, colleague, friend Sam Becker. Uh, we are launching this podcast from our respective homes in the middle of. Coronavirus pandemic and hope for a future Episode to someday be recording actually in the Same room uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wait To see when that is uh, and if you're Wondering what we're all about I, I don't know I think The roots of this podcast probably stem From a lot of conversations and text messages We've had at bars about Music and music criticism and Also just feeling as if there's a kind of a real dearth of a few things from From what we're reading including like a real Deep critical smart engaging criticism Out there and not not that there It, it isn't out there But that it maybe doesn't, a lot of it doesn't really take into consideration all facets of music. Uh, So like music industry, culture, politics, art, whatever. And I think that also comes from a place that's not like, oh, fuck this like review or like, you know, fuck Pitchfork or something. And more of a place because we actually like want more like good criticism and articles and whatever podcast about music uh, from a more, I guess, holistic approach. And I mean, I'd also just add, add that I also feel like we've also felt there's kind of a lack of, like, surprisingly somehow a low number of podcasts like actually about music. Uh, what do you What do you think? I think that's accurately sums us up. What, what would you like to add? I think yeah, no, I think, and
1: I think the, the reason we're talking about this album today, right, is I think it's a really good uh, encapsulation of a lot of those dynamics, right? Like, I actually I have no problem with this review. It's actually a pretty like well written review that gets at a lot of the album. The giving this album a 10 right this album kicks ass i really like this album a fucking lot this album is really fucking cool and neat and what's interesting about
0: and you've been listening to a lot of fiona apple lately so a surprising amount which you did not expect to probably do in your uh in your in your stay-at-home pandemic uh yeah no i uh, life
1: yeah i had not li- so okay so a couple different things i had not previously listened to a lot of fiona apple i think that's mostly due to fucked up gender politics. Um, just that like the way cultures work, it did not push me towards listening to Fiona Apple earlier. I'm also not musically, this is not my main mo. I'm not a piano in, I'm not like a piano ballad guy. I'm not a piano art song guy. That's not really tri- typically my music, like that's not like my home in music. A lot of those, a lot of those artists, I'm like, this is neat, but I'm not going to go and listen to it again. Um, so yeah, so this album, this album kicks ass. But the question was like, it seemed that in giving it a ten, there's a clear editorial marker, and there's a clear statement being made about this record that's very different from giving it like a nine point eight or a nine point five. And it really gets to this question of like. What is Pitchfork doing when it gives an album a ten? What is it, and what does that say about its broader mission as a uh, a place, and probably at this point, the place for music journalism in America? Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting
0: take. I don't know. I I actually, I mean, I agree with you. That's exactly. That's definitely what I was looking at. Um, I'm gonna go back to your point about it being it being the place for music journalism. Um, but yeah, I, I think that maybe the for what I would like to say before I say anything else is that we also have to consider though that possibly that the the numerical review, uh, let alone the review itself, probably doesn't hold as much weight anymore in like how an album is actually received by the public. And I, and and actually, to your other point, I would say that I kind of feel like maybe pitchfork, um, or maybe like really any music magazine or website that even writes about music. Probably doesn't actually hold as much influence as it did. I would say even like you know eight ten years ago over how a public perceives a record, um, and like obviously you could still cause a lot of buzz just as we've seen here by that. But it but for me it felt as if like there was a universal media rollout for this record that like didn't feel like oh Pitchfork gave it a ten and then everybody hopped on board, which we have seen I think in in the past. I think it was more like everybody all at once was like, this is amazing. This is what you need to listen to while you're like, you know, stuck at home, like, you know, tens across the board, five stars, whatever. Although Rolling Stone gave it its very, you know, typical, like four and a half. But, you know, you know what I mean? It felt like a whole huge media rollout. The it's cut, not by all- Dylan. It can't get five stars unless it's right, by Dylan yeah. or Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, like the cut did this whole like special. Where they had like ev like a bunch of writers. I don't know if every writer, but like a bunch of contributors and writers like give like a little, you know, one paragraph description of like their emotional and like historical relationship to Fiona Apple and a lot. It was a lot of like, I remember when I was crying in bed in high school after my first breakup and like listening to this record, you know. And that was on top of like them putting together like all the poll quotes from all the different like positive reviews it just felt like there was like this whole huge media push and then like the, they had all decided like a not like a unanimously to like give this record like a you know universally positive review and i know that's like not how the system works but it definitely felt less for me like an actual real sort of Attempt at some sort of like critical like analysis of this record and just being like, it, you know what It felt like it felt like the uh, lifetime achievement award at the Oscars where it's like, you know, what Fiona Apple's been doing this for a while This album is good, you know, and it has always you know it's, It is or it is amazing or whatever your opinion about it, it doesn't even matter But like we really need to like actually like crown her and like a full acknowledgement that like, you know what? She's been doing this. She's an interesting artist like etc. Cetera, etc cetera. um and I would just add one thing that, like, I think that maybe this is the way you were going, but I kind of feel like Pitchfork giving in a 10 <laughs> sort of, to me, reflects about how maybe Pitchfork's influence and popularity is actually, like, waning. Like, they, you know, it's hard to, like, look at their their the first 10 they've given in 10 years, almost 10 years, and as, as not, like... A sort of like grab for attention particularly when we're all just like flipping like you know scrolling on our phones like stuck at home it definitely felt like they were like you know what we need to like make a statement here not that the statement was like incorrect but like it does feel a little bit as if there was uh, a sort of like hey hey we're still over here we're still important we're still relevant
1: yeah no no, no. I agree especially um, in relationship to their last 10 where like I think that Pitchfork's relationship to rap culture and rap criticism and frankly to, to criticisms that to, to music styles that are not like the kind of home of certain kinds of electric electronic music and certain kinds of most of, of indie rock that are kind of like pitchfork's basic home base that i feel like pitchfork will do things where like they'll rank a couple of tracks from like the designated acceptable rap artists or like metal bands and give them high reviews While not doing that much to engage Over a long term Critically with this larger Musical body
0: um, Yeah like blood, blood Incantation Like I mean great record amazing They like you know gave it best new music But I think it's fair to say that like Pitchfork As a music outlet hasn't done much Engagement with that kind of style since of
1: music Kim, Since Kim Kelly left shouts to Kim
0: Kelly A terrific reviewer Hell yeah Yeah <laughs> wheres is where where is Kim Kelly writing now? I I don't I think Teen Vogue.
1: <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Let's um, continue on. I, oh, I just think it was like super indicative. Just on that side note, point that they Pitchfork reviews metal records and will give it them good reviews. But in that like hundred best records of the decade, there was not, as far as I could tell, a single heavy metal record. And this is a decade where. Heavy metal, heavy metal had a fucking decade, twenty ten to twenty twenty. Yeah. It's probably the only kind of rock that's still really fucking innovative and kicking and doing all kinds of wild new shit and like politically progressive and awesome. And they've reviewed some of those records, but when it was time to kind of tie it, so in it's a not bow, too far They off. didn't,
0: but but nonetheless, it, I guess it, the question goes back for me in a kind of a more like, have you stepped back a little bit? Like, what exactly? again to our original question what exactly is like a 10 you know and it, and i think that like you know pitchfork has never really explained their rating system i don't know if like other music outlets have really explained their rating system but it just seems to sort of be this like extremely arbitrary and um way of rating albums that it, you know also acts as sort of oh it also like so i have a number of thoughts on this like one It feels like it actually does the album like to me Like less justice by just putting a number on it and that actually like a really like thought out Well written review as jen pelly did, you know stating her review of it is like way more of a testament And then also but like the number rating also Allows you to not read the review like i wonder how many people like just ran like the 10 and maybe like a sentence or two or maybe just the subtitle and then it didn't get any farther. And, you know, if you kind of look at it more from Pitchfork's point of view or like maybe just like sort of like music criticism in the current state of music criticism, and music reviews right now. It seems like it would almost like be better if they want more people on their site for like a longer amount of time and actually like engaging with this stuff. It seems like it would be better to actually do something, you know, like get rid of the rating system. You know, and I know a lot of people be like, wow, that'd be like a radical, you know, a radical move because like Pitchfork has like based their entire identity around like the 7.6. Like, what the fuck does it mean? But I mean, I would actually like argue that it probably would be the smart move, particularly in an effort to like maintain some sort of relevancy, because I think like whether or not music outlets want to admit this or not, like, you know, they're a filtering system and they have to kind of like accept the fact that they are a filtering system. You know, and you, you kind of, like, accept that and or you engage with actual, like, in-depth journalism, lengthy reviews, think pieces, like, reportage, like, whatever. You know, you kind of have to, like, pick one or the other, in my opinion, if you want to stay relevant. Um, and so, like, and, like, so it just goes back to also, like, I think the, my final point, I'm kind of going a lot of different places, but my kind of other point about the, the like,
1: what is a 10 is that it just seems so relative why 10 and what does it mean? I mean, one of the things I think that was really interesting when you were talking about Pitchfork's rating system is I do think that there's a real contradiction at the heart of it, right? Which is that if you read the guys who start Pitchfork, the guy who starts Pitchfork really early on when he talks about what he wants, what he wanted Pitchfork to do, and this is from like a 2005 art management article I found. So looking at Pitchfork pretty early on. Um, And basically he goes like, I don't want it to be about um, like, if you like this record, then you'll like this record. I want this to be like personal relationships to these records. And so I think that like that centering of the eye in the criticism is in a lot of ways the like the definitive pitchfork style. It's about like, how does this music make me feel? How does this music make, how does this music sound and how does that sound make me feel? Which kind of emerges out of the like um, Lester Bang's gonzo tradition to a certain extent to really put the author of the review in the review but at the same time by putting it in this numerical thing and highlighting that even like the typography of the site right the review number is so prominent it also makes that comparison and that comparability in some ways the single biggest structuring element of the review and those two elements those two aspects are totally in tension, right this very personalized essays about the music and then the total interchangeability of the review like one 7.6 is equivalent to another 7.6 and then you read them and they tend to be about how it sounds and not about exactly what you were saying saxon which is like how does this relate to the career? How does this relate to the broader structure of popular music generally? How does this relate to like other artists? What is the history of this record? How do you get here? What does it sound like? How does this how could this be contextualized in the broader history of this musical sound or moment or artist or whatever? Um so, which could- yeah, so on that on that point, if I could just interject here, like on that point I, I completely
0: I think that one interesting thing is that I think that Pitchfork has since since they got bought out by Condé Nast in two thousand and fifteen. I think they've switched that sort of approach, and I think that maybe the point of tension now is how do we? I think what they've been trying to do for a long time now, maybe even like the last like ten years, I think they've been trying to like professionalize Pitchfork, and I mean that's only heightened by them being bought out by Condé Nast. And I think that it seems to me, as someone who actually reads the reviews, um, which is a whole other topic which we should get get in on. Which is like you know whether or not people actually really read reveals reviews, whether people read reviews, and whether or not they're relevant or not. Um, but I think that they've been trying to professionalize pitchfork a lot more, and with that, that sort of personal in putting the reviewer in the review and their own personal feelings to that record has kind of like started to get pushed to the wayside for better or for worse, and obviously that can be debated. Um yeah, oh your point your and and your point about the numerical part of the review being in tension with the actual review itself, I think is like really uh Really true. I mean, it's like rings. It's so true. And I would say that I've read reviews of like six point eight records and been like, wow, they didn't say a single negative thing about it, other than like maybe the trick, the kick drum sound. And then I've read reviews of like seven point five, so just like a lot higher, and like not a lot higher, a little bit higher, but still like you know, because I would consider considerably better, and it would be kind of like a lukewarm review in which like didn't really feel like they actually really did enjoy the record and i was a little i've always been kind of perplexed by that and i, I it's interesting you know uh one of the sort of original writers of Pitchfork uh, Brad DeCrenzenzo DeCrenzenzo uh i was doing some research myself about um about explanations on their rating system and for a really short while pitchfork like back in like 2012 did like a series called inbox where like he would answer questions uh written in from people who you know read pitchfork i guess and one of them was about The rating system and like he he wrote with while 101 gradients of quality can seem extreme You could say the same about any rating system What we're saying is all three and a half star albums are not created equal So 7.4 is better than 7.2 Which just feels like a little bit dismissive and doesn't really explain as much But it does kind of like lend to like what you're saying and kind of like how that originally started and what you were reading About the guy who started pitchfork ryan i'm blanking on his name, but um but i feel like they've changed that now and i feel like maybe the existential crisis of the the rating you know the numerical rating also something that has to do with like sort of the status of like the review in general in 2020 but also just
1: how like pitchfork has like transformed i think you're right that that personal quality has dropped away but what that ends with then it seems to me is records understood in isolation more or less um that you just have, like, this record as this, like, aesthetic object. And it's interesting. I mean, and and, and if you think about Pitchfork and the relationship... If we're thinking about Pitchfork in relationship to the broader music industry now, albums don't exist the same way. We know that, right? Streaming has really changed things. An up-and-coming artist, especially in a genre of music like rap, will release 20 standalone singles and be a major star sometimes for years before they drop an official album for a variety of like label and or career reasons, but there still is baked into the pitchfork system. This idea that emerges out of like a very specific point in the music industry, the seventies moment when FM radio means that they're playing album oriented radio, right? Uh, Post Sgt Peppers. So there's this idea that the album can exist by itself. Um, and this idea that, uh, yeah, that the, the albums are going to stand alone as independent aesthetic objects. And I feel like the pitchfork system, especially once you take out the personal take is still built around this idea as albums functioning as standalone aesthetic objects. And it's not clear to me that that's the most compelling way to consider music in 2020. Well, that's an interesting point.
0: maybe let me ask you then, I mean, like, so you but what you to clarify are you what is what you're saying that the album the album itself matters less now
1: to people to listeners. I mean yeah I mean I think that's true for popular music sure, or it means that when people are making an album like Fiona is like making an album like all in caps that that's a specific career decision that functions and it's an aesthetic decision but it feels like it shouldn't be the only way to think about music.
0: You know what I mean like um, no, I don't think that I mean I would agree with that I don't think but I don't think that necessarily I don't think anybody would argue You don't think Pitchfork would say I don't, that I don't yeah, think yeah, that yeah. anybody would argue against that you know Pitchfork obviously in other places cover singles quite widely you know and there's also you know various op-eds and various <laughs> articles being put out you know and I, I mean I guess I'm trying I guess are you suggesting that maybe it's not, like, the best thing to make, like, if you're a music outlet, to have that, like, be your focus of, like, your main center focus of, like, what you're covering?
1: No. I guess what I'm saying is it feels like the album as a standalone aesthetic entity, that's the primary determination determin- like, of an artist's career, um, comes out of a very specific moment in the music industry. And the music industry has changed a lot, and I think that some of the questions we're dancing around here, like what does a 10 mean, what does an album review mean, might might emerge from the fact that a system of reviewing that was born in one moment of the music industry In another moment, when pretty much everything has changed about the music industry, the method of delivery, how artists are being paid, where the primary profit centers are, how many companies they are, where they are in the world, how the corporations work, everything has changed, whether that same system for thinking about the artistic production of that industry still makes sense. Because I feel like you could take Pitchfork's album reviews, and you could pop them in Rolling Stone in 1970, and the review would be a little bit different, but the basic art structure of that review would not be different. Um, That the structure would be identical in a lot of ways, right? And it's interesting because, and and this is a a moment where it might make sense to take it like a second to, to think about the broader histories of rock criticism, because... There were other options, and there have been other options. And I I think that uh, an outlet like Pitchfork and a lot of outlets have chosen kind of one strand of how to think about music criticism. Um, But there have always been other ones floating around, too.
0: Yeah, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because I know prior to recording this episode, we were sending articles um, back and forth with each other kind of about the history of music criticism, but basically like rock criticism. And yeah, what
1: what what did you dig into? What what what's that out? Uh, one of the a great article I found about this was this guy uh, Robert Crisca, the dean of American rock journalists, still kicking. Um, he's still writing amazing music criticism, one of the best to ever do it, and still doing it. Um, yeah, if he's not a household
0: name, he's definitely a household name amongst people who are you know have, have written about music or covered music.
1: He's kind of like a little bit of a legend. I mean, his his rating system is really funny. He's got a personal rating system um, that might be worth just talking about extremely briefly in that he assumes most albums are terrible. <laughs> like the, <laughs> the standard grade is don't listen to this album. I had to because it's my job and you shouldn't. Um, then he's got a category, an entire category for albums that are mostly shit, but have a couple good tracks on them. And, like, that is – so, like, instead of where Pitchfork would be, like, a five, a fine album, Robert Christgau's like, basic score is, like, bad don't listen to it. <laughs> and then right, – de- And he definitely comes out of that sort of tradition
0: of that style of, of, of uh, music journalist, like, gonzo music journalist who's – yeah. And, and, and maybe not, like, on the same sense as, like, a like a, um, a lesser Bangs, but still sort of a very opinionated, not afraid to, like, say something negative – that kind that style
1: yeah and just the assumption his assumption is that most music is bad uh that like if, if an album gets like a b minus that's a huge like there's no grading on a curve a b minus means it's pretty good and i'd listen to it again and that's like a huge compliment and it gives like a handful of a's a decade <laughs> Right. Um, which i
0: feel like today like a b minus people would probably be like pretty up in arms and like angry about it yeah which so we can we can, t- we can touch on we can touch on the current state of like lack of negative reviews later. But continuing on, yeah, tell tell us a little bit about what you what you were reading.
1: So yeah, so I mean, I think that music criticism, American rock music criticism, comes out of a couple different vectors. Uh, for one, you've got music criticism that emerges out of like classical music criticism, which is this like long-standing tradition of writing tied to ideas about like that there's, like, truth and good in art, and all those words are fucking uppercase, like, Roman (laughs) letter capitalized. There's, like, truth and good in art, and that criticism can, like, help artists and help, like, uplift art to bring it to this higher level, and that that uplifting art will, like, filter out to the common peasants. This is, like, heavy-duty, 1880s, Gilded Age, uh, cultural propaganda it's why the met looks like a roman temple it's why we have opera houses all across america um and that strand though this kind of like hyper like romantic also with a capital r take on like art as the best and truest of civilization um that leads into classical criticism it leads into jazz criticism and it's still floating around in music criticism today uh Then there's, like, entertainment journalism, which is, like, stars and celebrities and how important those are to people. And that's always been part of music criticism, too. That comes out of, like, the theater and the stage um, and, like, Hollywood. And 100% as music, as performers become stars, they get wrapped up in that world. And that's always been part of, of, uh, like, show business, right? And then third is, like, business reporting. It's like variety and billboard go back to 18 variety starts in 1905 billboard starts in like 1890 when it was a what, magazine really? yeah what, dude billboard wow oh my gosh wow <laughs> never knew that billboard starts in the 1890s when it's originally an a magazine for people who own billboards that's the name uh, yeah, it's like an advertiser's magazine about like how to advertise things better, and then they switch
0: to when do they switch to music?
1: They switch to music, they start doing music and like the music industry in the 1890s because that's who's advertising. it's like the the theaters are advertising, so then they get sucked into theater advertising stuff, and then it becomes increasingly about like the music industry. Um, um, who knew that like billboard was like one of the like the longest running
0: pub wait is it still being published Do we still can you still get like a physical copy of billboard T- tbd
1: who knows I don't know but definitely for a fact I think billboard because it's got that industry focus is still like I don't think billboards uh billboard i mean i'm sure it's not doing financially great as well as it did but it doesn't seem like it's a legacy a legacy publication in the way that like rolling stone is billboard it seems to me is like still like very much like a vital like industry publication
0: yeah so maybe the reason why i'm not seeing it at you know the uh the, the, the Harper's, like, uh, quickie mart in the airport is because Harper's is that no Hudson 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 yeah. Hudson re- News, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So maybe the reason why I'm not seeing it in Hudson News in the airport is because it's actually like on the coffee tables of like record label, like CEOs or whatever.
1: I mean, yo, I like have signed up for like, uh, like I've got like an RSS feed where there's talking there, like, it- I get the billboard feed, and so much of it's about like who's uh, like management companies and what they're doing and like who's signed like what screenwriter has signed to which management company right which is very specific useful to some people less useful like me yeah well i i okay
0: that's interesting that's interesting okay okay so continue on with like the history yeah i'm curious like how do we get to the how do we like get to the music review as as is today and like you know and and uh, rating systems and whatnot so i mean
1: my, my understanding is a lot of this it there's uh you get jazz reviewers in major papers start having to cover rock and roll and so you start getting popular music beats in major newspapers you get Alt dailies, which happened in the 60s, RIP to like every single fucking alt daily in the world. Um, Boston Phoenix, you had a personal place in my heart. <laughs> uh, but right there, are these free publications, they're totally bankrolled by advertising. Uh, they're for younger people. Music reviewing starts happening there. You get a handful of specifically music magazines, the kind of um, Cream, Crawdaddy, um, Rolling Stone obviously trouser press in england that are specifically focused on this new kind of music some of them i think melody maker melody maker i think melody maker might be more businessy too i don't know yeah um i don't crawdaddy some of these come out of like folk revival stuff i think crawdaddy did i could be wrong judging by the name i wouldn't be surprised um and so in all of these uh Rock criticism starts evolving, where they start writing about this record that's part of this counterculture. Um, but what's really interesting, and and and, is that they're they're also always related to this music industry, right? And they've got this kind of funny relationship to the music industry at the height of the industry. I think it, there's this idea that I've heard about the the in house hippie, which is every label, right. right? These are, like, fucking 50s guys. They're in suits. They don't know what this new long-haired thing is. So every label, like, hired a freak who was, like, their, like, young, long-haired, pot-smoking translator, basically, to this new world of uh, music. And they, um... The freaks and the music reviewers are kind of from the same pool, right? Famously, like John Landau, a major music reviewer, then becomes Bruce Springsteen's manager, right? Right, right. He writes, Bruce Springsteen's The Future of Rock and Roll. Like, I thought there was no more rock and roll, but I have seen the future. It is Bruce Springsteen. And then produces Born to Run. (laughs) So there's like a relationship between these two worlds. And I think it's one of these relationships that we're like to a certain extent, music criticism helps to like provide a stabilizing function, right? That even if you don't know, even if you know that critically acclaimed things are not necessarily gonna be massively selling things. And I think that is a dynamic that evolves over the seventies. Once rock and roll becomes like an industrially produced thing and there's all these bands and groups like America are selling a bajillion records and Big Star is not. At the same time, there's like, I think, a stabilizing function where critics are like, this is good music, and labels are like, okay, we know what the good music is. We'll produce some of that, but also we'll produce not good music, but we know what the good music is and what the good music isn't, and that's super fucking helpful to us. Uh, To be clear,
0: music that isn't necessarily selling records at this time, but is like, heavily celebrated by music critics uh is is not necessarily the same as the music that's being sold sometimes it can be but it's not so that's what you mean by that like we're going to produce this other like quote unquote bad music but it sells and gets radio play but we'll also continue to play will also continue to record and put out records that maybe don't sell as much but have a cult following, and the critics really like it.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's also, like, it pr- it's really important for, like, aesthetic stabilization, right? It's like you need to have something to measure against, and I think the critics provide something to measure against even when they're being ignored in this period of time. It's like... Interesting, yeah. There's, like, a solid
0: point. It also kind of creates a subculture in a sense because... If you're someone who reads those reviews of the records that aren't super popular and you're someone who collects those records and can talk about those records, you are like automatically put into this sort of like subset, subculture, whatever you want to call it, that actually like listens to those records and goes and sees those bands.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in-
0: and that creates a whole identity also, which I think, you know, you, you could probably talk more about this, but I feel like it creates a whole identity which might even lead into things like underground music, which would happen, you know, in the late 70s into the 80s and 90s.
1: Yeah, I mean, Robert Kriscot, in in, in this, like, history of music journalism piece uh, that we both read, he talks about the Velvet Underground as the first band that didn't sell records that critics decided was good. And previously, like, if you didn't sell records, that just meant you didn't make it. And, like... So you weren't good because you hadn't really made it and maybe like you were pretty good and shouldn't have made it. But this category of like a great band that was too good for its audiences didn't exist in the sixties necessarily. Fascinating. Yeah. Would, would you also say, and I don't want to go
0: too much into this, try to stay on topic, but just curious, I don't know. Do you know if this was also sort of the case with jazz? Because obviously like jazz in the sixties was going through a lot of like huge transformations with the, with free jazz and ornette coleman and and coltrane getting experimental was it kind of similar were you having like jazz critics be like wow this is really you know the the what's it the shape of sound to come by ornette coleman like wow this is really something else but it probably didn't sell any did sell at all i'm sure
1: yeah i mean i don't know i think the jazz economy is much smaller um yeah that's fair that's fair and kind of always has been. It, well, I mean, it hadn't been. I mean, it's complicated. That's a really well, I mean, good yeah, question. Yeah, starting starting.
0: like at the time, the time period in which we're discussing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's also race in jazz, right? They, there was always like the sense that like these big white orchestras would outsell the hotter black orchestras. Um, I don't know, and that was like an organizing dichotomy. I think like how hot were you playing, and the hotter you were playing, meant that probably you were better for those in the know, but you weren't going to sell as many records. And I don't know if the, the construction of like an avant-garde where clearly there's a generational split in the sixties where they're like, what the fuck is this? This is like,
0: yeah. Interesting. Interesting.
1: But like staying
0: on the rock, like pop, uh, train, I guess it seems like what began to form in the sixties in the seventies, I would say kind of continued on to
1: into the nineties. Would you say? Yeah, I would say continued on into the 90s um, with music, right? Like there was no time when cr- what the critics said were good were the most popular bands. The same time that critics emerged championing bands, those bands are like cult underground bands, right? Um, either it's cult underground bands in that like it's from the literal underground or it's kind of called underground bands because there's a stabilization effect, I think, and I feel like that's that's an important part of that's not a failure on the part of the critics. I think like that's their job. <laughs> well, it's a, yeah. So it's kind of interesting. So yeah,
0: I mean, they're still in a sense playing the role of a filtering system, and they're still in some sense uh, in service to the labels, as you're kind of saying the sort of like aesthetic balance but they do also maintain this sort of relevancy as i guess a gatekeeper to the underground or towards like artistic respect i guess yeah i
1: think that's right i think it's exactly right
0: yeah and there's an there's an interesting line and this this sort of relates i'm going to read it out now and we can go ahead and like discuss it but like there's a there's a line in that robert crispau uh history of rock criticism that i thought was pretty interesting that i highlighted And he's when he writes, um, quote, there is an editorial logic to reviewing R.E.M. rather than Rick Springfield, Lucinda Williams, rather than Mandy Moore. Not just journalism's principal commitment to aesthetic quality, which we, of course, assume, but the self-evident fact that music criticism's reading audience is a subset of music's listening audience. Music is sensual, proverbial, counter analytical and sometimes pretty dumb, which does not equate with bad, except for sometimes pretty dumb, which does equate to bad. Criticism is none of these things, even in its blatant consumer f- service form, which I thought was like pretty interesting because, that particularly the part of like the subset of music listening's audience, and I kind of think of somebody like my mom. This is the second time I'm bringing up my mom in this podcast, but somebody like my mom who was like really into the Boss, but also like really into like you know Journey and like Eddie Money, and clearly like sh- you know her filtering system in the '80s was the radio that's like you know oh i like the single i'm gonna go buy the record you know she wasn't part of any sort of like subset of music listening which i think is more the type of people that like we are you know or or people that might have like read pitchfork in like the like early to mid 2000s um and so in a weird way they're kind of serving like music journalism was also sort of like serving those people as well yeah no totally i mean primarily primarily probably always has actually
1: no, I th- I think that's right. I mean, I-, I think on that line, there's the the um, oh shit, who bought Pitchfork? Uh, sh- Condé-Nast. when when Condé Nast bought Pitchfork, their chief content officer was like, "And we're excited to bring this audience of intense millennial men into our publishing sphere," which again gives you the sense of the limitedness of the audience. A- also, just so you know, uh, uh, Chris fucking loves Rick Springfield. (laughs) That was not like he gave him (laughs) side note. note, He gave him a really good review in like his thing. He's like Rick Springfield. Jesse's girl is a kick-ass song and Rick Springfield is fantastic. Uh,
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, in that line, he's obviously trying to create a sort of line between, you know, REM as being like historically this, you know, college, you know, radio underground indie band, maybe the first of, you know, obviously that can be argued. You know, versus someone who has like a massive single and then I don't think has like another single ever again. Or maybe he did, I don't know. But I think he's just drawing that line. Yeah. Know. So was like REM being like the the music reviewer's um,
1: darling. So, so to keep with this history, the question then is like when did things change? Because clearly things do change. Um it's called the internet. It's called the internet. I, I would also say that the rise of hip hop in the nineties starts to fracture things fundamentally. Um, I mean, I I think that there's kind of this like back and forth between white and black music listening. Um, I think like R and B in the fifties and sixties is more mixed race than like what white kids were listening to in the seventies or much of the eighties and uh, and vice versa. And I do think that with rap music, one of the things that happens maybe to start this off is you get a a, cra- a fracturing of critical consensus um right like like nirvana and tupac have very different aesthetics and it's not clear that the same 10 point system can account for both of them which kind of i mean which is exactly what I've been talking
0: about like for this entire podcast which is like you know what not only like what is a 10 or you know a 5.6 or a 7.2 but then also just generally like who's it useful for yeah
1: you know? no it, it and, and and i think what you're saying is it's useful in the context of the internet which is the next thing that really changes everything um and it changes both industries right i think that's critical like at one hand it totally redoes the american recording industry avi And second, it destroys newspapers, like we know. (laughs) Um, So there are fewer and fewer music criticism gigs. There's more and more independent criticism where people writing blogs or just people commenting on stuff. Um, And the music industry really changes. And again, in that article, Chris Gaw talks kind of points towards, like you were saying around 2004, a change in uh, the role of music criticism. And what he says, right, is that around that what you need is a return to that gatekeeper function where in seven, the seventies to the mid nineties or late nineties, maybe that part of what they were doing was a gatekeeper to like, uh, like aesthetic quality quote, fucking unquote, or like a gatekeeper to an underground aesthetic. And they provide this like stabilizing function to the record labels. What he suggests is that given how much music starts getting released once, the costs of recording drop, um, what you need is people just being like, this is good. You should listen to this. You should listen to this. You should listen to this. And that kind of overwhelmed by the vast flood of not just uh, not just the amount of music, but of how many different kinds of music, the kind of uh, uh, like splintering of a mainstream listening audience that happens certainly among like the underground and then increasingly in the mainstream as well that a critic's role might be just to point out shit that's good that you would like it's a very different relationship to the music right
0: exactly and I think that's where we are today and and I think it's interesting that Chris Scott was writing this in 2004 and and the specific quote in which you're referencing I actually have and it's it's this it's a he writes The internet will make it easier to access and for better or for worse, will help shift consumer focus from albums to individual songs. True. But there'll still be more music that anyone can absorb. True. Especially anyone with other things to do. True. You know, it's like, it's so obvious what he's writing. is. It's just like he was totally looking into the crystal ball. It was completely obvious. He also goes on to write, um, this means that whether the technological future is utopian or draconian, the consumer service aspect of rock criticism, and I feel like, side note, you can include any kind of like music criticism. The, conser- the consumer service aspect of rock criticism has been redefined. Consumers need gatekeepers far more than when people when popular music was what got played on the radio and made the charts. They need people whose life work is seeking out good music of every sort and telling the world about it. Maybe not literally, but with linguistic informality and rebel rhetoric, the mood and ambition of the quality popular music still re- regularly demands. And I think that it's a good time to also mention, and I can't believe I've gone almost an hour without saying this, but I kind of look at... Bandcamp as kind of an interesting example of maybe what he's talking about here. And it's a little bit more complex because Bandcamp is also like a, like a platform in which you can sell music. And that's also how they make money because they take a cut. But I've found that like on their main page, I feel like that their editorial team and, you know, full disclosure I've written for Bandcamp a little bit, but I feel like the editorial team tends to have um a lot of like real like independence and they don't write anything negative which obviously as a platform for people to sell their music you can't really do that but they do write like lengthy articles on scenes on bands on artists and then they have like a like a section called new and notable where it's like literally like 25 to 30 words giving like a very short description of it and it's basically like hey if you want to listen to like you know Rock steady influence, you know, metal music from Portugal. Like, here's this new album, you know. And I don't really know how they go about picking that, but I'm pretty sure it's just they have an editorial team just constantly listening to this, being a filtering system. Being, a, you know, I think filtering system is almost kind of better than gatekeeper, but being a fil- filtering system slash gatekeeper, li- going through this stuff, listening to songs, seeing what they like, and like throwing it up there. Actually, it's probably more interns, to be honest with you. But I think that's kind of a sort of like what he's talking about here. But then that kind of goes into, like, the question of, once again, which we've been grappling with, like, once again, like, how do we maintain, and maybe there is, maybe it just doesn't need to have, a doesn't really have a place anymore, but, like, the the lengthy record review, or even, like, the lengthy review, where does the numerical rating stand in today's world? You know, is it still sort of this gatekeeper sort of filtering system, and maybe it's like, just that, and maybe, like, you know, 50-word, you know, review? And then also, I think, it you know, something that we haven't talked about that I'd love to, like, at least touch on is the idea of the negative review. Because as I mentioned with Bandcamp, like, Bandcamp really can't really give a negative review because it's also, like, a, pl- a platform, you know. And I would even argue, and I haven't done any sort of, like, research on this, but I wouldn't be surprised that someone who actually does check in on Pitchfork and read it, like, you know, semi-regularly. It seems like, you know, the days of the 0.0 or, like, you know, the 2.1 are gone. And actually they as I mentioned earlier in in the episode, they've actually scrubbed a lot of those reviews like out of their system so that you can't even find them anymore but like is there any sort of like maybe we shouldn't even say like negative, but just like really in depth sort of like critical reviews that maybe are are negative in or at least like not not positive in the sense that you know say like the the fawning over the new Fiona Apple,
1: yeah. I mean, the the clearly like negative reviews change when, in some ways, the limiting factor is bandwidth, not new music, right? So if you're giving something a negative review, you're either doing a performatively negative review now, like shitting on Post Malone or shitting on Imagine Dragons or something, um, or like if just a record isn't that great. And it's not – like, why spend the time? I feel like for a lot of these places, like, why spend the time talking about it? Right. It's
0: Well, you know, that is interesting. And and it is, I think, still performative. I mean, I recall, like, a review that came out a couple years ago in this sort of, like, new Sunday – not new. I mean, it's going on for a couple years now. But in this Sunday review – Section in which Pitchfork does now where they review like old records, you know them going back and like reviewing You know the first sublime record and giving it like a negative review and that definitely felt like very performative in a sense (laughs) You know, I mean I guess like their cultural impact is so important It would kind of feel like a blind spot but if you're going into the entire history of like rock music umbrella like you know You can pick and choose what you want to look at and it did feel sort of performative but it did kind of go back to this sort of maybe like 70s, you know 80s style of rock journalism where it's like you know, you need, they need to maintain, like, what what was it that, like, Chris Scott, you know, the aesthetic quality, principal, you know, commitment to aesthetic quality of, like, music journalism definitely kind of feel, still felt that way, but it's also interesting, too, because, I mean, you could look at Greta Von Fleet, and, I mean, obviously, I think they're the probably, like, the prime example of getting, like, an absolutely, like, terrible, like, scathing review from Pitchfork in the last couple of years, and I'm pretty sure, like, even that scathing review, like, made headlines, like, elsewhere, but then, you know, the question is, like, I mean, one, the subset of people that are actually reading that review and caring is probably so much lower. And in the and, and I would also just add that in the age of streaming where, you know, yes, they make peanuts, but artists make money off of streaming songs. I mean, to be honest with you, I streamed a few Greta F- Von Fleet songs after that because the review was so bad. I was like, I kind of want to listen to this. So I was contributing to their, like, you know, 40, 460 million plays they have on Spotify just because I was interested in how bad it was. So in a weird way, even a negative review can actually, like, help a band in a sense and
1: and that's what i think going back to that point um i think that's actually a really crucial like going back to streaming and the way the streaming has changed things and uh to your point about Bandcamp as well man i think that like the, the, that's crucial in my mind is that i think i disagree with you that like what chris garr wrote in 2004 is where we're at now because I think that actually we've entered another stage that's in some ways fundamentally different, which is it seems to me that with streaming, with TikTok, with YouTube, with the way that music and the commodified music is flowing through all these social media channels, that what he was describing in 2004, I kind of read as like, without radio, like how will people discover music? And people's problem right now is not not discovering music because the major content producers are have more powerful ways than ever before to jam pop songs down your throat, right? The key thing about a pop song is getting people to listen to it. And there's more effective ways, whether that's playlists and the massive amount of payola that goes into the Spotify playlist games, whether that's the music that's being put on video games or the music that's being put in, Uh, TV and movies. I mean, the level of major label control over what people listen to now is unprecedented. And so I feel like the question is like, if you're doing kind of like a tastemaker discovery thing, given the fact that even that review is then going to be picked up and sucked into this whirlwind of advertising content streams and search results and algorithmic results and the whole way that information is sorted and functions in today's digital economy that even that taste making reviewing thing the way that you are gonna see that or not see that is incredibly determined by these major labels and these major content producers and the few stars that are able to work this system effectively and i do feel i I feel like um To me, that article, thinking about the change between now and then, leaves the question of like, okay, if that was effective music criticism in 2004, what is effective music criticism in 2020? What do you think? I think that effective music criticism in 2020 needs to be about the music, but it also needs to be about the system of distribution. It needs to be about the entirety of how the music functions in the world, which includes the system of publicity, which includes its relationship to these non-music economies, which includes kind of being self-reflective about what it means to give something a 10. To talk about Fiona Apple's album and give it a 10 and then not incorporate the fact that this is a 10 album, that's changed the album. The album that existed before Pitchfork gave it a 10 no longer exists because it only exists in the way that we get it. And it's your Apple's Pitchfork 10 album, and that is part of how it's going to function in the world, and it's inextricable from the music. Like, maybe there's a platonic ideal of music out there somewhere, but not anywhere that we can grasp. And that I feel like music criticism... Needs to be self-reflexive about that entire system that determines how music really functions in people's lives. Um, That's why I
0: feel like it it felt like that's why I said earlier that it felt like a huge media rollout because it felt as if all these systems in which you were which you just mentioned all kind of like got together and decided and like to like shove this down my throat, you know. And so like I consider myself like what Chris Gow said to be like a subset a subset of like music listeners who's like you know I'll actually like you know. Go three or four days a week, you know, or at least once a week to band camp and like listen to two or three songs of all the new and notable stuff and actually like seek stuff out. But I realized like that's pretty I'm a pretty small subset of like music listeners. And I like and it definitely felt like if the system and I'm, I'm going to put a big umbrella term over this. Like if the like the music industry system you know, which includes Pitchfork and labels and the artist wants to shove something down my throat and make me listen to it like they can. And I feel like that's what happened with Fiona Apple's record. And it has nothing to do with like whether or not I actually like it or whether or not it's good or not. And like, I think, you know, that that doesn't even matter. I immediately was seeing 10.0 first one in 10 years, you know, this person's writing about it. This person's posting about it. I'm getting an advertisement for it. I'm like, well, I I better go listen to it, and I did. I went. I like, you know, I <laughs> went, went. as soon as I got home. I put it on the. I put it on the stereo. and Like, listened to a few songs. So it kind of it does. So what you're saying, it does does seem to hold true on a very like personal level, where it just seems like, yeah, like they wanted to shove this down my throat, and I paid attention. And I'm even someone who like, you know, maybe is a little bit more specific and. Puts in the time and effort to actually find like new or like you know obscure or you know up and coming like music, and dude, they decided to push it down your throat, right? Like well, I think like the I mean I don't know like this is where this is like where like our like very very like thick walled bubble comes into play here <laughs> you know That's- from the from our confines of our brooklyn homes but i don't know actually and i'm actually like they might have been shoving it down like other people's throats i actually no- the, the way that i also oftentimes just a side note because this i think this is funny but this is like i oftentimes like checking with with like my sister to see what she's listening to because she's definitely not like me and you know and like someone who i thought that was like pretty much like off like not on the radio like Lana Del Rey like I knew she was like popular and like all that stuff but I didn't think she was like on the radio like apparently it was like actually quite very much on the radio and very much in the periphery of people who like only listen to pop music which I didn't actually realize
1: no but I mean I I guess what I'm saying by you I mean like how something like Fiona Apple's album functions is also based on the listenership that it's being advertised to, and that those ecosystems and how they function in relationship to a broader music ecosystem. And it feels like that's part of the story of the album, too, right? Like it means that an album is being created and marketed in ways that outstrip the wildest dreams of like marketers in the 70s. And so the audience of an album is a critical part of, like, how that album functions in the world. And it's being determined, I think, in a way that's far more intentional and far more pervasive than it's easy for people to think
0: about. Yeah, I I think it's interesting. So, like, let me ask you something, like, maybe to sort of wrap things up a little bit because I think that a lot of the themes that we're talking about will continue to talk about, like, throughout this podcast. But I guess one thing that I got to thinking about was – it sounds like this sort of idea of, like, editorial independence or autonomy seems to not really play a role in this sort of, like, new future of of music criticism. Like, they're not going to be, like, a pawn to, like, just promote an album for a major label. Although that plays a huge role, too, because you can think about something like, you know, Pitchfork is a part of a whole other publication conglomerate called Condé Nast. And if they give like, you know, you know, uh, some pop star, you know, Kanye West or whatever, like give some pop star, like, you know, a negative review, then that could affect like, you know, another one of their magazines, like, you know, a Vogue from like getting an interview with that person. I mean, I don't know how much that really plays a role, but you know, that, you know, that does also, you know, at least is something to to take into consideration. Um,
1: but also, I think that like where that review goes after it gets written is a huge part of it, right? Like the pull quotes. Like there's nothing the pull quotes and like the media. The media. Uh, there is no unmediated news, right? There's nothing that's not determined at some level by like Facebook bubbles and Twitter bubbles and. So, like, I feel like even if you have editorial independence, even if you have, like, a scrappy little, you know, take no prisoners, long form, iconoclastic, like, Steve Albini-esque fucking shit-kicking music criticism site, then it's published. And then, like, how does it – that review can just be pulled out and then enters the stream. It's put into your, like, like, Instagram feed where they, like, buy now. Like... Or or it gets buried, you know? It's like, there's no position of power versus this thing. But I, I do feel like, and maybe that can be one of the things that criticism can do, right? If music criticism was always about teaching people or at its best, in my opinion, right, was about engaging with this art and then engaging with how this art is in the world because that's the amazing thing about music. There isn't a fucking thing it doesn't touch. It touches history, it touches culture, it touches sex, it touches industry, it touches power, it touches capitalism, it touches fucking everything. Um, figuring out how music exists in the world and I feel like music is one of, is the, is the, has has long been the first step to a broader set of societal changes. And what's happening in music now is often like the very distant echoes of what how everything else is going to function. And so I feel like music criticism now can also do something about if it can teach people how music actually exists in the world, it can also teach them about like how things in the world are moving around. And that shit and that awareness is important, right? Like... Being aware, like, even the little, like, the number of people who don't know that Facebook is algorithmically sorted, right? Who feel like if they post something and no one likes it, it makes them depressed because they feel like people don't like it, rather than the fact that no one saw it. Just that kind of awareness of the complexity of these systems as they evolve, I feel like music criticism has an opportunity to, like, incorporate that into the story and tie it to something that people really fucking love, Yeah,
0: definitely. Definitely. I agree. And you could even see that in, you know, when um, maybe a friend of yours or maybe something you read online about, you know, artists who, you know, rally uh, rage against Spotify or, you know, bang or whatever, what other stream of servicing music (laughs) to people, you know, they don't get enough plays or they don't like like how the algorithm works or whatever. You know, like they, some of them are like realize that, but then some of them are just like, yeah, I don't know. I can't like get any traction. It's like, man, it doesn't, it really actually sometimes even have anything to do with your music. Um, but I think that's a good, that's a good place to sort of, uh, I think like wrap things up. I think a lot of the things that we're talking about, uh, like I said, we'll be talking about in future episodes. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening.
1: And then do you have anything else to say, Sam, before we wrap it up? Yeah. Um, yeah seriously listen to this is fiona Al- apple record it kicks ass but also listen to the previous record and which also kicks ass
0: well that's a, maybe a discussion we'll have in the future is like whether or not we should be taking into consideration an artist uh, discography when uh, listening to the album <laughs> does does it matter can we just take it as is shouldn't it all be in there anyways for future art critical discussions um yeah till next time thank you